Previously on the Censor The first book of the Banath was read, and the details of the world's creation and of the unique properties of men were disclosed. We then went forward in time by the order of a few thousand years to a wondrous city called Hosyabain, which is under siege by Kotol Beskig, a foreign emperor from the fertile land of Wentekia. Due to certain architectural ingenuities of Hosyabain, the prospect is deemed to be futile for the invaders, and they are about to depart before a certain overlord of the city opens the gates for them, inviting them in on the condition that the change of power would be a peaceful one. That overlord's name is Yichin, and his plan proves to be a fortunate one for the city. For now. The Censor Chapter 3 The Annunciation to William Yichin, of course, did not intend to suffer any indignity from the event of Kotol's arrival, even as many of the lords were routed out of their houses to accommodate the imperial officers of Wintekia. The overlord who opened the gates held fast to his apartments in the palace, next to where Kotol himself was installing his staff. This, in his cruel and unscrupulous mind, made him the mightiest of the Hosea, and more of an overlord than he had ever been before. If you had asked the marvelous Yichin at that moment who was the true king of Hosea-Bayan, he would answer, I cannot say, but give the name of that Kotal if they ask. Like any other public noble had in the civilized world, Yichin had a wife. Her name was Weem, a name that, as she would claim, was given to her by Yos and not by her mother. While most would not accept Yichin as their king in name, nearly all would lovingly call to Weem as a queen, if they had ever chanced to sight of her. To Yichin, she was more of a gem in a treasury than a wife, and he kept her close and hidden as to make such loveliness rare. And, though he desired after her beauty and jealously barred her from the eyes of any man, he did not have sex with her. It was said by those attending in the palace that as he approached her in manly libido, a vague dread overcame him and his desire was quenched as a torch thrown into a flooded cave. And, even as William knew it was her obligation to couple with this cruel lord and make a child, she felt relief when Yekin fled the room to hide his flaccidity. She secretly relished her time away from Yekin, but she was lonely. Being the wife of the city's overlord, she had a high vantage of the wide street that brought travelers from the eastern gate to the gates of Thud's palace, so she was audience to the entrance of the strange horde from the rivers of Wentekia. Yichin discussed little with his wife, so she knew nothing about this invasion. That is why there was someone there to tell her about it. Do you see that light near the gate? 
She started because she thought she was alone, but there was a man seated at the lip of her terrace. As no man besides her husband was ever meant to see her, she quaked in fear of the impropriety, but the fear fell from her as parasites dying unaccountably from a suffering beast. The man stood from the lip, and she could see that he was clothed in an artisan's smock that was not soiled with dust, paste, or paint. His limbs were wholly metal but for the Yonmus fibers, which looked like spun silk. She knew his name, just as she discovered hers. That light is being held by the sacred Pabo of the Abbey, an old man named Dulach. The light may seem to be within a thurible of the Abbey, but it is the light of the Divine Congress, of Yos's passion for Gudin. It was indeed a blazing light, but the multitude did not shrink from it. It is being held to the face of a new king, a Kotal named Beskig. But that light is for your eyes only, Weum. I know this, for I am the supreme artist who spoke with God's voice when I devised the limbs for men. Dramtur, the artisan who carried with him the light of Pabo's censer, went to Weum as Yichen would. He had no fear. She was unsure but had no fear herself. The father of everything has been gone from the world. You would never speak of it, but you have known this yourself. You can see this in the state of everything, even from this window. People may speak as if they live in the city of God, and they might even boast of it. But they haven't felt his presence since my people, the Taramkuts, have been treated as vermin. The Hosea did this because they did not want a complicated image of Yos. So they blotted out an entire facet of the father and called it a holy struggle. Yos was sickened by this, and he fled the city to wander the wastes that lie about Dinia's country. But you can see that his light is shining again in the world, and he wishes again to walk amongst men. Dramtor pointed his unworn, unsullied fingers at Weum as if to steady an instrument. A gleam came into his squinting eyes as if he was hewing the shape of a thing of perfect inspiration. The steel fingers touched under her navel, and she sobbed in agony. Dramtor left the apartment without going through the window nor the door. Chapter 4 The Birth of Hikadoff The change inevitably came upon Weum, and she found her way to conceal it from Yichin. As if to allay this care, her belly did not grow overmuch, but only so much as it would have if she had eaten too richly for too long. As his wife had little to occupy her besides foodstuffs and the view from her window, he did not wonder too much at her change. Her attendants were more learned in the changes that women know of, so when she had no need to purify herself before the holy baths, they waited for the husband to make inquiries. He did not ask, and they did not inform on her. The secret could not be contained forever. When the sickness and agony came to an inflection which commanded the attention of all the palace, a greater part of the female staff were crowded into William's bedroom. Yikin did not enter, for he was held by his own anxiety. There stood the master of the house, his hand poised to force open his wife's door, and only then was his manly ignorance dissolving. 
as Kotal, the master of the palace and of the city, appeared in his amusement from the distant chambers, a new voice joined William's wailing. The king from the rivers joined the new voice with his huge, deafening merriment, and turned away from the stricken lord as if to hide his laughter. A baby appeared from William, the mother who had never taken a man's sperm. It was as clean and healthy and vibrant as a crying infant could be in the world. Even as the boy was pulled from the mother, her agony was pulled from her as well. She sat up, as no mother had done so early after her labor, and took the child from the midwife. William was so rapt that she forgot the pain that the boy's magic took away. He was turned towards her. Hekadoff, she said, and there he was, anointed in the blood of the virgin, screaming his infantile complaints. Hekadoff, the mystery that was brought from the sky to the lonely queen, looked on all in attendance with his newly opened eyes and calmed. Yikin was in the bedroom. He had crept in while all eyes were on the boy. The truth of all the noise was mounting slowly on him, even as he saw his pale-faced wife holding the unwashed, unlimbed baby. However, when William chanced to see him, he was already in a bewildered fury that she wasn't accustomed to. "'Whose baby is that?' asked the quivering lord. "'It's my boy.' "'And who sired that whore's son?' The midwife asked, "'Is that not your baby, lord?' "'No, friend,' said William. "'The father of this child is the father of everything.' These words drifted past all in attendance as if she had never said anything. There was a polearm-shaped ornament above a shelf, which Yekin took in his gilded hands. You devised some crime somewhere, and you kept it from me for a long time. You dropped to the streets like an escaping cat, and you welcomed in you the rutting of some landless coolie. You did this again and again, man upon man, until you worked the scum into a bastard. There you are, this careless succubus to who I gave grapes and silvered hands. With my means, I gave you those dainty limbs and those silvered hands. The virulent fiction in Yeekin's mind was further nuanced by William's well-crafted, thin, ladylike metal hands that he saw laid on a man who was pulling a barrow. In his fury, his own arm limbs worked against the shoulder sockets and a rivulet of blood was carried from one arm to hand to the shaft of the spear. The pain and the slickness of the ornament occupied his eyes, and he could not look at William. Somewhere in the palace that Thudes had built for this city, Kotol's entire staff was overcome with mocking laughter. It carried clearly into the bedroom silence. The word him was heard amongst the joyous voices, and the word her. At this new sound, the newborn looked about, twisting his stumpy body and casting his eyes everywhere. Yekin's stricken eyes met the child. Letting go a bellowing cry that was like the dying screams of a bull, he hoisted the deadly ornament. He would lay it across the length of the room, letting the bladed tip fall onto the child. He would do this, and then he would do the same for his wife. He did not allow Kotol to remove him from his station, and he would not let such a dishonor remain living. The weapon was gone. It was neither on the floor nor back on the bracket, but it was not in Yekin's hands. The Lord let his hands swing forward, but there was nothing to bring down. 
The child, who had not broken his gaze with Eakin, opened his mouth and let out a light like the overbright burning inside a sensor, and it lit the man like a focused ray of sunshine. Backwards he went, sobbing in horror and confusion, and threw open the door. Outside the bedroom there was no hallway and no palace in evidence, but a wasteland that was, and still is, all eaten up and burned up by an everlasting, ever-raging fire of vengeance. The only one who could be seen on this plane was Dinia, who throve in Yosa's absence in the world. She was beautiful in all her failings at the birth of the world, and her formerly sullen and bitter manner was now triumphant. As tall as an exalted minaret, she drew Yikin into the plane by his own faithless desire. The door clapped shut, as if to mercifully conceal Yikin's eternal torment from the innocent. Seeing his cruel stepfather driven to this fate, the blank and blameless soul of Hikadoff knew regret for the first time. He was lost in his speechlessness and his transient, infantile memory, but he knew the suffering that he put to the man, and he did not delight in it. His baby's wailing resumed. You should make like the Lord said, said the midwife over the bawling, and way off the terrace onto the streets. The Hosea will take you in, and they will not ask questions. Stay hidden and conceal your lady's limbs so you can appear wretched. So they did this, belaying the mother Weem down the terrace lip in the shadow of a yucca bloom. Landing harshly on the streets that her Yikin accused her of walking, she took off right away. She had not been outside for years, and she did not know where the nearest basilica of the Hosea stood. But she heard a furious uproar from the palace. She did not know either that Kotal was less amused when he heard of Yikin's unbelievable fate. He did not credit the truth told by the midwife, but he took it as a lamentable fact that there was no native overlord with which to project his power. As for the missing Weem, the midwife was silent and she was put to death by Kotal's own sword. In his fresh rage, Kotal seized what remained of Yikin's house and assembled them in William's bedroom. I have allowed this house to remain in power, while most conquerors would have extinguished it. You all would have been killed if I had not been so merciful. All I had asked of your lord Yikin was to stay in this palace and convey my word. But he is gone. This foolish midwife has given me some seaside fable about him perishing by the magic of the wife's illegitimate baby. And there is no better story than that. Yikin is gone, but this house cannot continue as my instrument while the source of dishonor is unaccounted for. Kotal laid his eyes on Yikin's brother, a most viable heir. You do not have a nephew. All in attendance understood, and they assented. Chapter 5 The Flight to Tel Bathud Already then were Kotol soldiers, still alien to the eyes of the city, creeping through the streets in search of a baby. In their haste and ignorance, they chose to be unscrupulous in the task. They figured that babies were not rare in this barbarous midden, and a few mistakes were easily forgiven. Thankfully to all, women and babies were rarely seen in public in the city of God, but more than ten mothers and ten children were cut down in the street for their scant resemblance to the quarry. Even as that tenth mother pled in vain for her child's life, 
William had found the basilica upon the tell of Bathud, a heap that rose above the surrounding houses. That tenth baby's name was Deshul, and her mother's name was Kiwa, but the soldiers did not know the sex of the child they were meant to destroy. Even so, Kiwa and her little Deshul had allowed Hikadaf's survival with her sacrifice. As an eastern sword cut down Kiwa in her grieving, William was rattling the big oak door of Tel Bathud. Kaibun, who was a minor brother of the Hosea, answered the door and right away saw the terror in William's eyes. He tried to rush her in, becoming urgent as he heard the cries in the street below. But William did not enter. Instead, she placed the serene infant in Kaibun's arms and pulled the door shut herself. Bundling parts of her robe into the larval shape of a swaddled baby, she bound down the tell and back into the street. Kaibun did not see what happened to her, but he knew of her course. As she fled, the soldiers spotted the harried woman holding the infant-shaped bundle and went for her right away. She put all of her atrophied strength into her flight then, and drew the men far away from Tel Bathud. She was a noblewoman of idleness, and so fresh from the birthing bed, so she could not run so fast and so far as even the least soldier. The soldiers saw this fleet-footed woman and they knew that they had their prey in sight, so a greater part of them joined in the chase. It was a blessing, because no one else was killed on her account, and for that she was thankful. As she had thanked Yos that she had been guided to take such an action, a spear, which had been forged and turned thousands of miles away, was thrown into her back. The force of the missile had been enough to throw her to the dusty, tar-sealed street, and the soldiers sighed their tired success, because they knew it was William who they had speared. Though these murderers did not see it, William did not die. She was pulled from the tarred earth by the woven arms of Gudin and carried from her feet. Thence did she ascend like ash flakes from her fire towards a light that could not be seen by mortal eyes. Neither could the invading soldiers see that William was not there. Instead, they saw an empty corpse and the empty swaddle, so they heaved her onto a commandeer barrow to deliver her to the Kotal. The others slowly crept back to their barracks, content with the belief that they had accomplished something heroic. None of them ever enjoyed a restful sleep in their lives henceforth, nor could they feel satisfied with anything. They did not feel regret, for they were wicked, but their curse was multiplied another fold with each sword stroke and thrown spear. A busybody had seen William hand something to Ahosia at Tel Bathod before she made her doomed flight. So he told the soldiers from Wintekia. Though they were loath to continue their exhausting search, they were inflamed by the discovery that William's corpse did not disclose a sleeping baby, so they took the busybody's word as fact. As they ascended the stepped passage up the tell, their progress was impeded by ten men with hoes and flails at hand. One fellow, a limner with a fine-crafted hammer, demanded that the soldiers leave the city. Another man with a sort of poleaxe meant for chopping agave hearts explained that they were the fathers and husbands of those who were murdered that night, and that they would not allow them to spread their defilement to the basilica upon the tell. The captain of those soldiers broke over the rabble with his harsh voice. We know there is a baby in that church, and he is ours. His mother was an adulteress, and the stain of honor must be wiped out. At this, a new voice broke in. 
It was a man who was not armed with a grievous tool, but with a holy lantern that gave off a thick, aromatic smoke. Even with his face in the light, none of the soldiers knew this man was Duliach, the Paybo of Bathud. We know this foolish rumor too, you captains of Wentekia. Perhaps the originator of this tale wished for a cash reward for his rumors. I will not substantiate this tale. The Paybo was bound by the will of Yos not to lie to anyone, but the captain did not know this. Well, said the captain, then we shall look inside this little hut on this old trash heap. The captain started forward with his men, but the ten husbands and the one Hosea formed a wedge on the wall of the tell. The soldiers faltered. I am compelled by God not to hurt or kill for any reason, but neither God nor I can keep these grieving men from propelling all of you off the wall. As the payboat indicated, it would be impossible for the soldiers to ascend the tell without the risk of at least half of them being killed. One glance over the precipice by the captain was enough to prove this fact. The soldiers from Wintekia left for their cursed sleep at the barracks, and later to wake up from the Koltol's wrath. The captain of the soldiers was a victim of an imposed decimation of the squadron, and he died in a hail of stones thrown by his own men. After that, the rumors of a special baby that was hunted by the soldiers from the east became confused, and then they died out. Though Kotal had to content himself that there was no use worrying about the issue, it never left his conscience. After so long of a time where he was able to impose so much power through so little uncreative bloodshed, something small, inconsequential, and unpalatable fell through his golden sieve. These people are so fond of a god named Yos, and that is why my soldiers were thwarted at that temple of that ancient trash heap. Kotol confided this to a concubine of the Baitashir, who had attended him in privacy one night. The worship of Baita had long been extinguished in the green country around Hosiabayan, so it was rare to see one of his sacred prostitutes in the city. He is not a god to them. Yos is the one and almighty god of the Hosia and the father of everything. The prostitute was not, in truth, fond of Kotol, but she was glad to be in the fine city without the fear of pious Hosea clerics. Yes, the Kalitos and the civilized Baxans have had no king for so long that they needed the guidance from the Hosea. These holy people would no sooner say nay to a Hosea brother than they would to a king. In Kotol's mind, a salient point had been made by the prostitute. He did not need Yichin anymore, nor his broken legacy. The Censor was written and narrated by Seth Brady, with music by Noah Pardo. For any questions or comments about the podcast, please tweet at bogeyvetol. That's B-O-G-I-V-E-E-T-O-L, double E. B-O-G-I-V-E-E-T-O-L. Or follow Noah Pardo on Instagram at NPX Sound. Thank you for listening.